0: Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. And with Ben Valsler, and that's me. Coming up this week, we'll be hearing about a new trick to pinpoint cancerous tissue in the prostate, how bats and dolphins share a gene for echolocation how barefoot runners have a smoother ride, and we'll be finding out about the fish with the wonky mouth.
2: And we'll also be finding out how scientists have discovered a factor that helps to stop nerve cells from degenerating, which could help to develop new treatments for diseases like Alzheimer's. And
1: today's show is all about augmented reality. That's technology that can add an extra layer of information to your world. Coming up, we'll find out how it works and what it could be capable of, from helping you to find your nearest train station to helping mechanics work more efficiently.
2: Tom Drummond will be joining us to explain how it works and why we'll be seeing it both in handheld and head-mounted devices in the near future. And we'll find out from Luis Arguello how augmented reality could stop the problem of repair manuals floating about the International Space Station. Imagine that. Plus, Mira discovers how virtual reality could help with rehabilitation after a brain injury or a stroke. And Dave shows us some famous ghostly illusions in kitchen science.
1: That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists. So if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at the naked Or if you're using Twitter, just tweet at naked scientists.
0: The Naked Scientists Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at UKFast.net
2: This is the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Helen Scales.
1: And I'm Ben Valsler and I'm going to kick off this week with a story about scanning for cancer's biochemical signature. Now, researchers in the States may have found a way to detect potential prostate tumours using magnetic resonance spectroscopy and this should lead to fewer false negatives, better precision when locating tumours and a better idea of quite how aggressive they are. At present, if prostate cancer is suspected, we need to take a biopsy. This can be directed by ultrasound, but as the tumour can only be confined to a small region of the prostate, they're actually very easy to miss them. Magnetic resonance spectroscopy analyses the biochemistry, unlike magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at the structure of the tissues. Now, this means that it can look for distinct chemical rather than structural signatures of a tumour. Leo Cheng and colleagues at the Massachusetts General Hospital published a study in the journal Science Translational Medicine that builds on some earlier work published in 2005. The earlier work looked at the biochemistry of a tumour and identified a metabolic spectrum for prostate cancers, a series of chemicals produced by the tissue that identifies it as a tumour. Studying the entire suite of metabolites left behind by a cell is known as metabolomics. With this ensemble of metabolites in mind, they set about scanning five cancerous prostate glands that had been removed from patients. Their scans measured the proportion of these signature metabolites to give an indication of whereabouts in the prostate had a higher malignancy index, i.e. a higher likelihood of these cells being cancerous. The prostates were passed on to histopathologists who, while being very careful to preserve information about whereabouts in the prostate any particular sample was taken from, they just used standard histological methods to analyse the tissue visually and determine where the tumours were actually located. When the results of the two tests were compared, five out of seven tumours coincided with areas of high malignancy index. The remaining two, it is thought, were compromised by being close to the edge of the prostate, where the interactions with air could have altered the metabolomic profile. Overall, their accuracy was over 90%. Now, intriguingly, there was also a correlation between the size of the tumour and the magnitude of the malignancy index, suggesting that this technique could not only identify the malignant tissue, but also give you an indication of quite how aggressive it is. This is only a prospective study at the moment, and the low sample numbers may lead to an overestimate of how accurate it really is but they are very promising early results. As they say in the discussion part of the paper, metabolomic imaging has the potential to detect lesions, guide biopsy, and eventually identify other conditions of malignancy, such as tumour aggressiveness. They also add that it could be adapted to identify other types of cancer. So, very promising work.
2: I assume that this kind of scanning is... um feasible and and not hugely expensive, or or is that also something that might have to be addressed with this? Is it something that all hospitals have, or is it quite specialist?
1: They use the standard scanners that they've already got. They've actually been using a particularly powerful one. Um, It's a seven Tesla one for those who want to know about these sorts of things, and hospitals are more likely to have a three Tesla or perhaps a 1.5 Tesla scanner. So that's something they want to look at to see if it still works in a less powerful scanner, but they're not specialist scanners. They're definitely available in in a number of hospitals worldwide.
2: Excellent. So looks that could be promising indeed. Well, I'm going to take things into the animal world now and to bats and dolphins, which may appear to be very different types of mammals. After all, one of them flies and the other one swims. But it turns out that they have both independently evolved exactly the same gene that allows them to use sound as a way of visualising the world around them. Both bats and dolphins hunt using echolocation. They emit bursts of high-pitched noise and listen very carefully as the sound waves bounce back to them. They use these echoes to build a detailed mental picture of their environment and hopefully pinpoint other animals that will will become their dinner. Well, a vital part of both bat and dolphin echolocation systems is a series of tiny stiff hairs in their ears and these vibrate and detect those very high frequency sounds Um, and they're made from a protein called prestin. Now an international team of researchers have published two papers in the journal uh, Current Biology and they've uncovered the remarkable fact that the Preston gene for this protein has undergone precisely the same changes in DNA sequence in distantly related bats and dolphins. Now many other groups of animals have evolved to look remarkably similar despite really not being very closely related at all. So we've got things like modern day dolphins look rather similar to ancient extinct reptiles called which are very distantly related indeed. Um, But this is the first time that so-called convergent evolution has been detected at a molecular level. And the research team were able to build a genetic family tree showing how the changes in this pristine gene built up identically over time, both in bats and in dolphins. And what this really suggests is that maybe there's, there's only one way or certainly a very limited number of ways that mammals can physically evolve the necessary apparatus to be able to echolocate. And it's really remarkable that many species of bats and cetaceans, and that's including whales and dolphins that can echolocate, have taken this same evolutionary pathway towards an identical genetic solution to the same challenge of seeing with sound.
0: These
1: examples of convergent evolution, it always seems to be about the particular niche they live in. So being able to echolocate is so very useful that there's, there's quite a lot of pressure to actually have some mechanisms similar to that.
2: Absolutely. And, and the just remarkable thing is often when we're talking about physical conversion evolution, when things look similar, you know, they've come about, they've found that solution in very different ways. They may look the same, but they've sort of come at it from very different angles and, and have got different mechanisms to overcome that. But somehow echolocation is so very specific that there aren't that many, maybe that many ways in which we can do it at all.
1: Well, one thing that there are many ways of doing is getting about, and we, of course, do it bipedally. But now it looks like people who run barefoot learn to minimise the impact shock by adopting a different style of running from those people who are running wearing shoes. Now, this is according to research published in Nature this week, and it could help us to understand the impact-related injuries suffered by a relatively high percentage of runners. Daniel Lieberman and colleagues at Harvard University used kinematic and kinetic analyses to observe runners who were either habitually barefoot or who generally wore shoes. Both groups were asked to run in shoes and to run barefoot, and high-speed camera footage was taken to observe exactly how their feet move. They also got volunteers to run over a force plate, and this could analyse how the forces were transmitted during different kinds of running. Now there are three ways that your feet can land when you're running. There's a rear foot strike, which is when you land heel first, a mid-foot strike, where the heel and the ball of the foot land simultaneously, sort of a flat strike, and a forefoot strike, in which the ball of the foot lands before the heel comes down. Sprinters and the habitually barefoot seem to mainly use forefoot or mid-foot strike, while shod endurance runners and the majority of joggers use rear foot strike, so they land with the heel first. To understand why we use these different ways of landing, and what it means for an injury risk, Lieberman looked at the force profile for each step type. So by plotting the forces felt against time on a graph, it was easy to see that rear foot strike, either in shoes or barefoot, has a very large spike of applied force just at the time of landing. While the forefront strikes, so landing on essentially your toes first, gives you a very, very smooth wave with little or no sudden impact forces, essentially you have a much smoother ride. Now, this step also helps to lower the body's centre of mass relative to the vertical force, and this means that it reduces the mean force that's acting on your feet and your ankles. So landing on the forefoot first helps to reduce the amount of body's mass that needs to come to a full stop per step. And considering that most runners will strike the ground around 600 times per kilometre, I think, something along those lines, which seems like an awful lot... Uh, This is very significant for the development of stress injuries. Also, humans and their ancestors have probably been running ever since we adapted to travel bipedally. And we've only been running in shoes, especially running shoes, for the last 40 years or so. So evidence from the structure of the modern human foot suggests that it is adapted to get the best out of forefoot strike running. So that's landing on the front of your foot. And this not only reduces the likelihood of stress injury, but it also offers a selective advantage by getting more out of your movement. So as the incidence of, re- of running injuries remains significant despite advances in footwear technology, it seems that even the best shoes may not be as good for you as no shoes at all
2: does certainly sound like we should be learning to walk again which is quite bizarre (laughs) or that we're really not doing ourselves any favour although of course we're protecting ourselves from all that concrete and broken glass that we've invented as well as fancy shoes. Anyway I'm going to finish off the news this week uh, returning to the fishy world and a story that I just couldn't resist because these are wonderful creatures that um, I learnt about many years ago um, when I was an undergraduate and it's a new story that's come out about the enormous diversity of the wonderful cichlid fish living in Lake Tanganyika in eastern Africa and a particular group of these fish that has evolved a most peculiar feeding habit they sneak up behind other fish and pick their scales off. And they do this every time approaching from either one side or the other. And you can easily see from looking at a fish, whether it's a lefty or a righty, by the shape of its mouth, which is enormously lopsided, bending around either to one side or the other, like a pair of tweezers that's been bent over at the end. Now, researchers Thomas Stewart and Craig Albertson from Syracuse University in the US have discovered that these fish are genetically programmed to have these lefty or righty mouths and um, and the reason in fact that we get both of these forms in a population rather than just one of them dominating is because there will always be an advantage for the minority form because if you imagine if the world was full of just righty cichlids the fish are going to learn that are being attacked are really going to learn to expect an attack from the right hand side so if there are any lefty fish hanging around they can easily sneak in and get a good bite to eat so that's why we get um some lefties and some righties in populations. But it also turns out that the situation is a little bit more complicated than was originally thought because some scale-eating fish start out life with a straight mouth, with their mouths pointing in neither left or right directions. And we really don't know what's going on here. And in fact, the the, um, researchers point out in their paper that there's a couple of different options for what might be going on because we don't see these straight-mouthed fish as adults. Um, Is it just that they're not surviving, maybe, because they're just not as, as good at hunting and sneaking up on these, these prey fish or is it that in fact over time their mouths do bend around to the left or right and these are questions that they they hope to address in the future and it really just goes to show that from flat fish with eyes that migrate from one side of their bodies to the other and us human beings who have hearts usually on our left hand side means that not everything in life is neat and symmetrical.
1: There are some very odd looking things in our rivers and in our oceans, aren't there?
2: I know, and they're all wonderful, aren't they? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, also in the news this week, scientists at Cambridge's Babraham Institute have identified a factor that helps to stop nerves from degenerating. Now, this could lead to better treatments for degenerative diseases, but also better ways to halt the degeneration of a nerve that gets damaged as a result of an injury or a stroke for example. Dr. Michael Coleman leads the group responsible for the discovery, and he joins us now. Hi, Mike. Hello. So, first of all, just briefly tell us, what does a nerve cell look like?
3: Okay, so let's start with the um, cell body, uh, which is essentially um, the equivalent of what happens in most other cells. And in this cell body, you have the nucleus, which contains all the genetic material, Um, and compared to other cell types, then the nucleus might be slightly bigger and there's a little bit more metabolic activity and protein synthesis going on in that cell body. But by and large, the cell body is not so different from most other cell types. Then we have coming into uh, that uh, cell body uh, what we call the dendrites. Now, there could be a huge number of these, literally thousands or tens of thousands of dendrites coming into that cell body. And the job of the cell body really is to integrate that signal that comes in from this enormous number of dendrites and to produce what we call an all-or-nothing response. And that all-or-nothing response, the electrical uh, activity transmitted to the next cell, then goes down what we call an axon, and that's the bit that we're interested in. And what's, there's, there's two things really that's special about the axon. Uh, first of all, there's only one of them. Um, and this means that it, this is effectively, um, the, in, in some ways, the most vulnerable part of, of the neuron. Because if you lose that axon, you have totally lost the functional capability of that neuron. Uh, the second thing that's interesting about the axon is its length. Uh, these can be enormously varied between different types of neuron, uh, but in, in, its, in its extreme case, in a human, this can be anything up to a metre long. It can go the length of your arm or leg, and it can go the length of your spinal cord.
1: So they certainly
3: do sound like the, the fragile, the,
1: the weak link in the chain. What happens when a nerve becomes damaged?
3: Okay, so um, we've already pointed out the axon's very long, uh, and um Clearly, um, the the axon has to be supplied with all sorts of material from that cell body. Uh, So um, most of the proteins and certainly all of the RNA and many of the organelles are made within the cell body and they have to be shipped out. Um, And there's a a very intricate um, system of what we call motor proteins, ATP-using proteins, uh, that that, uh, are responsible for taking out and controlling that delivery of those uh, proteins and organelles uh, to to the further parts of the axon. Clearly, like any um, pipeline or supply system, uh, that's going to be vulnerable in, in various ways. So in, in various disorders which may be inherited or neurotoxic um, or, or, or viral disorders, for example, uh, and protein aggregation disorders, you can have a, a, a blockage in this axon uh, which prevents material from getting to the far end. And sooner or later, that result can result in, in, in functional impairment and ultimately the death uh, of that axon.
1: So you've been able to identify a, a particular factor that seems to be a, a sort of stay alive signal for the for the axon itself. How did you find it? Why did you know that there was something like this
3: there? That's right. Um, so what what we did was effectively to to ask the question among these um, thousands of different. Cargo that are being transported down the axon is there something which is actually a limiting factor for its survival? So a nice analogy here might might be um, a, a, a um, car accident on the motorway causing causing a huge uh, build up of traffic behind it. And in, among that traffic, among all those vehicles caught up on the motorway, you will have an enormous different uh, number of reasons uh, why those people are trying to get from A to B. Some will be uh, relatively trivial and not a major problem, um, and some might be a life or death issue in, in the most extreme cases. So, for example, the family trying to get to the beach uh, for a day out uh, will be very frustrated to be held up for half an hour uh, but it might not be a major problem Um, but if the if the um, ambulance trying to get to the accident at the front is held up then you quickly have a life or death issue on your hands so what we have effectively done is to go in there and say what is the first protein that becomes life-threatening for that axon if it cannot get through to the far end and how did you identify it? Okay, so effectively, what we did, um, I, the, I should say that the experiments didn't happen in this order. But when we stand back now and take a sort of broader look at it, we can interpret it in this way. So, effectively, what we did was was to cut the axon, uh, and then say what uh, clearly that that results in a kind of catastrophic death of the of the of the more ex, uh, distant parts of the axon. That's something called Wallerian degeneration, which we spend most of our time studying, and um, then. Say what within there is is the first factor that that's um, not being able to get through that kills that axon, and to do that, effectively, what what we have done, not always knowing at the time, but what we have now done that we can see, is to replace that factor by something that can substitute for its action, and we knew that there was something which could keep those axons alive, because experiments back in uh, University of Oxford in in the late nineteen eighties um, indicated that there was a a, a mutant strain of mouse. Uh, which would acquired a spontaneous and harmless uh, mutation, uh, and this, in experiments where those n- um, nerves were being cut, um, actually delayed the degeneration of those nerves by tenfold. And over the subsequent ten years or so, uh, we and and others identified the the gene that's underlying this process. And the last ten years, and what what um, this uh, has just led to, has been un- trying to understand why that how that protein works. So by
1: identifying the gene in these mutant mice you were able to work out which protein or at least which family of proteins it was that was responsible. Um, proteins of course always have strange names that are very
3: hard to remember. What's this one called? Uh, it's called NMNAT2 nicotinamide mononucleotide Transferase. So d- two.
1: D- difficult to say as well as That's difficult right. to remember. <laughs> yes. And so uh, what does it actually
3: do? We know that it, it, it seems to keep the nerve alive but by doing what? Okay, so that's um, that's an interesting question. So it certainly has an enzyme activity. Uh, it makes a molecule called NAD, uh, which um, the biochemists among you will will know um, is is heavily involved in energy metabolism inside a cell, and that is in a way is the most obvious um, potential consequence of of this protein uh, being missing when it can't get get into the axon in enough quantity. Um, however. Um, Sometimes the most obvious um, direction to take is not the correct one, and, and we've seen this a number of times. Uh, and there, there is some discussion in the field at the moment about whether whether NAD synthesis is the most important or the key um, um, function of this protein that's, that's involved in, in the um, axon degeneration or whether it's something else. Maybe it works in reverse or maybe it catalyzes a different reaction as well. So clearly there's still some work to be done, but what's the next stage for you? Okay, so um, what what we try to do um, often as scientists is is to keep away from animal experiments where we possibly can um, by taking cell culture alternatives or, or work in, in, in um, other organisms such as uh, uh, fr- fruit flies um, and the work that we've done up to this point has has been here um, in a cell culture system. There will at some point be a need to um, confirm this uh, with, with, a, with looking at a mammalian nervous system to, to know that what we've seen is physiologically relevant. And that's a very important step because if we always stick to alternatives... Uh, then there is also a risk of diverting the science if we don't actually confirm that we are looking at the, at, at the right thing. So that's one very important step uh, um, to take in the near future. Um, another one uh, is to look at what this means in terms of disease. So we, we need to actually remove this protein and, now and ask whether the nerves actually start to die back um, uh, and whether this mimics certain disease situations.
1: But it's certainly very promising work. Again, I do like the fact that we, we seem to come up with all these really promising things. So hopefully, we can follow up with you in the future and find out how it's doing. Yes.
3: That'd be great.
1: Well, thank you ever so much, Michael. That was Dr. Michael Coleman. He's based at the BBSRC's Babraham Institute, and they've published this discovery in the open access journal PLOS Biology. So you can find that online.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science. The Naked Scientists.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales, and Ben Valsler. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, Or you can always send us an email to chris at scientist.com.
1: Now, this week's show is all about augmented reality. These are new and emerging technologies that add extra layers of information to the way that we see the world. Coming up, we'll hear how this technology can assist astronauts on the International Space Station and also help mechanics here on Earth to work much more quickly, whether they're repairing boats, buses, cars, planes or trains.
2: But now, Dr Tom Drummond is a Senior Lecturer at the Machine Intelligence Laboratory at Cambridge University, where they're working on some of these technologies. And Tom has very kindly come into the studio today to talk to us about augmented reality. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming. Hello. I think we need to start off with what what is augmented reality? It sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but, but what is it? It
4: does sound very uh, science fiction, doesn't it? It's about taking uh, computer graphics off the computer screen and making them available over the natural world, over the real world. <clears throat> now obviously the real world doesn't have a computer display capability, so you need to put those graphics there somehow, and the first way that we thought of doing this was to use a head-mounted display. You look through the head-mounted display at the world, and then a computer can display computer graphics over part of the world to you.
2: So you're looking at the world and you're putting a sort of layer of information of some sort that refers to that world in some way.
4: That that tells you something about what you want to do with the world. So you might want to, in a medical application, uh, for example, in laparoscopic surgery, be able to see what your uh, instrument is doing inside the patient, where blood vessels are, maybe uh, if there's a tumour that you're trying to target or something like that. So that's one kind of application. Um, There are obviously entertainment applications. There are games available now that use this technology. Um, or indeed uh, there is educational educational benefits and so on yeah,
2: yeah it seems to me that a sort of browse around the internet shows me that, that that quite recently the that sort of entertainment and advertising side of the use of things is really developing quite quickly, and that you can have magazines with augmented reality and you wave a magazine in front of a computer and it Something pops out on it in, in three dimensions um, through your your uh, webcam, so that seems to be um, quite a big part of it. And it's in sporting um, events as well. We we use the lines across. Um, sure, in American uh, races football, and for example, yeah. the first
4: down line is done
5: by so augmented that, reality,
2: and yes. that counts as sort of a, a way of of putting information and, and advertising as well on uh, in, in sporting events. Mm-hmm. But uh, but like you say, there are sort of more. Worthy and useful applications, if you like, of, of this, this technology as well. And, uh, and you say you started off thinking about a head mounted way of doing this. What, what are the alternatives if we weren't to have we walking around wearing helmets, presumably? Yeah.
4: Well, I think the thing that we're starting to see now is handheld augmented reality, which runs on, for example, a smartphone. Um, and in that version, what you see on the screen of the smartphone is what the camera. Sees in the world, so it's a bit like having a video camera or a a digital camera where you're seeing the preview of the picture. But what augmented reality does is it traps the graphics in flight between the camera and the screen, and you work out what you're looking at and where it is, and you add the virtual elements uh, to the image at the same time so that you can blend. The uh, piece of information that you want to add to the world over the top of it graphically.
2: So it almost feels like you're holding up a magic spyglass in a way, and you're looking through that and you're learning something else about what you're looking at. You know, I could hold it up to you and it might tell me something about you perhaps or, or whatever.
4: Yes, you we could want. see my name <laughs> floating above my head or something like that.
2: Right. And, uh, and, well, um, I believe you've been looking at the, the pros and cons of these different approaches of a head-mounted versus something we can put in our pockets and pull out. Mm. And what are, we look- what are the sort of differences between those two approaches?
4: Well, a head-mounted display gives you a very immersive feel. When you're looking at the world, the computer graphics are right there in front of your eye. So it's, uh, there's a very strong connection between the virtual elements and the real elements but then there are some negative consequences as well. It's very difficult to build these systems without latency in them. So when you move your head, the computer graphics might follow a tenth of a second later. And unfortunately, one of the consequences of this is that it can make people feel motion sickness, and it can be very unpleasant to use a system like this. Head-mounted systems are also very expensive, uh, and uh, that can be uh, a barrier to their use. And also, they're very cumbersome. You have to put something that gets between you and the world on top of your head whereas by contrast a phone is a small thing we all carry it uh, and it has all of the computer hardware inside that you need to run some of these applications Um, if there's some latency and the picture takes a tenth of a second to catch up as you move it nobody really minds because it's not directly affecting what you're seeing and conflicting with what your inner ear is telling you for
6: example
2: and and how is this, are we actually seeing this being used in the real world, as uh, you know, outside the laboratory? I mean, one of the sort of um, possibilities that I thought was rather exciting was um, the use of um, these kind of things for um, tourists, for going to a, a site perhaps of a, of a ruin that's fallen down now and actually holding up your smartphone or perhaps even wearing your tour guide helmet uh, goggles and it would recreate what the acropolis looked like when it was full of people or um, you know when it was still still there and that, that seems to me to be quite exciting are we seeing this kind of thing actually being used absolutely
4: here? there are applications available now on the iphone store and on uh, on for other phones like the google android phones that use gps to locate the smartphone and a compass to work out which direction it's pointing in, and then you can display computer graphics like this mountain is whatever it is or this building is King's College Chapel whatever. Um, So these systems are appearing now, and I think that they're going to become very popular this year. In some sense, the limiting factor of those is that GPS and compass isn't that accurate. And one of the problems is that if you want to draw your labels very precisely over what you're seeing they tend to jitter around and often if you look at videos of these systems in action you can see that the, the labels are jittering around a bit relative to the image. So you're kind of you know
2: it's not quite a pointing at King's College Chapel it's sort of hovering about in the air. Hovering bit. around somewhere yeah. nearby.
4: Now one of the things that's driven our research into this is using the image that's coming into the smartphone to locate what we're looking at. And if you can work out what every pixel in your in the image from your camera is looking at, then when you draw the graphics on the screen, you're going to be drawing them roughly to pixel accuracy over the top. And that tends to lead to a much more stable uh, viewing experience. And the graphical elements look very stable on the world and really look like they belong there, which is actually quite important in terms of how the users respond to uh, these extra elements being displayed,
2: and I can only imagine, being a, a humble marine biologist myself, that the technology involved are in taking an image from a moving image of the real world and inc- incorporating it, your position on that must be extremely <laughs> challenging. I mean, we won't go into the details now, but I'm just wondering what what's the main problems that you have to overcome to be able to put these these images together and use use say a, a smartphone to to shine it to something and tell you what it is.
4: Sure Um, yes I mean there are a lot of issues in particular smartphones are not the most powerful computers available and so there has to be a lot of effort has gone into shrinking the algorithms down so that they can run in the compute capacity of a smartphone. Um, When you're talking about the data from a camera there's actually a huge flow of data coming out of the camera of the smartphone and so it's actually a serious issue to be able to process that in time to be able to work out where you are Mm. and what you're looking at, yes.
2: And finally, I think, one thing um, that seems to me to be very clever, a use of this, is to communicate expertise, to be able to transfer yourself into another place and and almost get someone else's brain on the case. Can you tell us about that um, quickly?
4: Sure, yes. Uh, That's one of the systems we developed, and really that came from uh, an occasion where I was phoned up and asked, well,
1: the
4: car is out of water. Where do I put the water in for the windscreen wipers? And I'm standing there with my eyes closed, trying to picture the engine bay of the car, thinking, well, at the back on the right, there's a translucent white bottle there somewhere. And I was thinking, you know, if the person could just take a photo with their phone and send it to me, I could draw an arrow and say, it's here. And then even better, when that photo goes back to them, if when they move their phone, that arrow stays pointing at the image of the water bottle, that would be brilliant. Uh, and, in fact, some very clever people in my lab built a system that did exactly that. So what the, what it does is it uh, extracts information about what it can see, for example, the engine bay of your car, uh, and then in real time it builds a model, a 3D model, of the things that it can see, and it calculates at the same time where the camera is moving, and then all of this information together is used to help a remote expert place information into the scene that will help the local user in solving
2: the problem that they have fantastic I know next time I need to refill my water in my car I would love to have a gadget like that on hand thanks ever so much Tom for giving us a great introduction to the world of augmented reality explaining how machines can recognize and track reality he came from the comes from the machine intelligence laboratory in Cambridge University and we're very lucky to have him with us for the rest of the show so if you've got any questions at all about augmented reality then do get in touch as always you can email Chris at the naked
1: but now let's have a look at a relative of augmented reality, and that's virtual reality. This is a computer simulated version of the real world. Mirrorcenthalingam has been exploring the use of these simulated environments in medical treatment and rehabilitation.
7: This week, I'm at the University of East London, which is located in Stratford, and I've come along to the psychology department's virtual reality lab, and with me is Dr. Paul Penn, who's the lead researcher of the virtual reality research group here. Now, Paul, um, some interesting work you've been doing here is using things like virtual reality in order to rehabilitate brain-injured patients and stroke patients,
8: Yeah, that's right. We're really interested in looking at VR as a means to kind of improve the lot in terms of rehabilitation and assessment of people that have suffered a brain injury. A lot of brain injured patients, as part of their recovery, will spend a great deal of their time completely understimulated and not officially in therapy and things like that. That's really a problem for patients from a neuropsychological perspective because the way the brain responds to injury, if you like, is determined by the environment in which you're trying to recover. So in other words, if you have a very stimulating environment, the chances of you getting better functional outcomes and better recovery from the injury will be that much better. So what we're really looking at is using VR as a means to enrich environments post-brain injury.
7: What aspects of brain function do you focus on with brain injured patients?
8: It tends to be things like memory. So we look at how well people can remember root information, for example. We look at how well people can remember objects they see in an environment. We also look at the way people can remember to do things at some point in the future, what we call prospective memory. So that's things like remembering to close the front door after you've opened it, remembering to attend appointments at certain times. Very simple things that we take for granted, but are actually quite they're very pervasive in everyday life, obviously. And these are the kinds of problems that because they're so intertwined with everyday life you can't really assess properly in the lab and that's what vr gives you it gives you that chance to put real world scenarios into the lab
7: but a key point of the virtual environments that you create here are that they can be used simply on laptops and desktops which must therefore make them much more accessible
8: yeah, absolutely. This is a really important part of our emit. So, really, one of the, if you like, fundamental criteria that we use when looking at VR is, well, will this run on just an average modest spec PC? What we tend to do now is what we call a Windows on um, World kind of system, basically, where the virtual world just appears on a computer screen. So, it probably looks like a computer game, like you or I would play on a PC game or a PlayStation 3 game. But obviously, the difference is that our environments are really they have a purpose other than entertainment.
7: So now um, we've got a laptop set up in front of us, and it's got a particular virtual environment on it, which is a virtual bungalow.
8: So what you can basically see here is a simple sort of forum bungalow with a hall, and the patient's task here is essentially to actually help the person who owns this virtual bungalow move to a larger bungalow. The person's task is to go through these rooms. So first of all, we've got the hall, followed by the lounge, and then allocate furniture to these new rooms. So they're engaged, they're searching around the existing bungalow and they're looking for items of furniture that, for example, belong in the hall while they're doing this what we actually have is a series of three memory tasks so you can think about the removal task as a kind of distraction task essentially because that's the way memory works in the real world it would be very easy if all we ever had to remember is just what we had to remember but the problem is we have all these distractions around us all the time and it's how well we can filter out those distractions and actually you know get to the crux of the matter and that's really what this environment is assessing. We're giving them the removal task as the distraction task. What we're actually looking for is how well they can remember to do three different things. Now, you might remember that I told you that remembering to do things at some point in the future is what we call prospective memory in psychology. Broadly speaking, there are three types of perspective memory. First of all, you have what we call event-based perspective memory, which is kind of memory that's precipitated by seeing something in the environment generally. So in the example of the virtual bungalow we have here, when the participant is strolling around the house, they have have to look for glass items now when they see a glass item they have to remember to put a fragile notice on it for the very simple reason we don't want the you know the removal men being manhandling it and breaking it the second type of prospective memory is what we call activity based this kind of thing occurs when you see something in the environment that itself serves as a cue for the memory so for example if you turn an oven off on rather that's also your cue to turn the oven off again because you perform with an action which should then Prompt another memory to perform the reverse of that action. The task we have in the virtual bungalow here is that they have to remember to close the kitchen door after they've opened it, simply because we've got a, a cat, a virtual cat, if you like, in there, and the cat escapes if they don't. The third type of prospective memory is what we call time-based. This is the category of memory whereby you have to remember to do something at a certain time.
7: Say if somebody's got a meeting or an appointment, they need to remember to do that.
8: Yeah, exactly, or remembering to turn into a radio show, for example. The idea here is the person opens the front door every five minutes to let the removal men in.
7: Having these three tasks in action, then, when someone's in this environment, what are you specifically looking for?
8: the extent to which people have actually recalled or remembered to perform the task. So how many times out of a possible three have they remembered to open the front door for the removal men? How many of the, I think it's about eight items that are fragile, have they remembered to put the fragile notices on? And by looking at that kind of data, that gives us an idea of their kind of memory profile. And from that, you can kind of extrapolate what kind of problems they might have in everyday functioning.
3: Look for items and furniture to be moved into the hall.
7: Okay, so I'm just having a go on this now and I'm walking through the hall and it's reasonably easy to move around. So I'm just using the cursor, the arrow keys on a keyboard to move around and then just mouse buttons in order to open doors and pick items. So I guess that's quite crucial, making it quite easy to use.
8: Yeah, the interface is really important obviously because what we're looking at here is potentially using this environment of people that may not just have memory problems, they may also have problems with perhaps their physical mobility and their dexterity.
7: So now having actually tried this environment out on various Various stroke patients or brain injured patients. What have you found to be the improvement?
8: What we tend to find with this task, um, we've used it on stroke patients, for example. As you would expect, really, they're impaired in all three types of memory. They're particularly usually impaired on the time-based task. The time-based task tends to involve what we call self-initiated retrieval in terms of there are no prompts in the environment. You have to remember to provide your own prompt, which is to look at the clock. And we find that people that have had a stroke can often suffer with this kind of behaviour. It's very, very difficult for them to self-initiate.
7: So what can you then do with this information to improve their condition or improve their memory?
8: So what this kind of information can do is allow the rehabilitation professional to actually orientate the rehabilitation very precisely to address the problems that that person has. So, for example, if they just have a problem with time-based retrieval, there's technology you can use, like personal organisers, maybe iPods, to actually provide prompts at certain points in the day for critical activities. What you can do, having interacted with this environment, is get an indication of the kind of prompts that someone will need to offset their memory problems.
1: That was Dr Paul Penn from the University of East London taking Meera on a virtual experience to show how simulated versions of real environments can be used to monitor and rehabilitate patients that have suffered strokes or brain injuries.
0: Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
1: Now, when something needs changing or repairing on the International Space Station, astronauts need to open a printed manual or look at a laptop to find out what it is that they need to do. But that's not necessarily easy to do when everything is floating about or when you're working in a confined space. So, what's the solution? Well, the European Space Agency are developing a system called WEAR, that's short for Wearable Augmented Reality. It's a headset that superimposes instructions and information onto the thing you're looking at. Luis Arguello is one of the principal investigators behind the new system, and he joins us on the line now. Hi, Luis. Uh,
6: Hello, good evening.
1: So what's the main point behind the WEAR system?
6: Well, this is just uh, a tool to help the astronauts to perform their uh, their activities on board with more accuracy and uh, using uh, less time. The thing is, as you mentioned before, the astronauts are floating in space. They have to perform different tasks, experiments, maintenance. They have instructions for uh, things which are there since a long time. They use paper. And uh, for a once-in-a-time task, they use the laptop to see what they have to do. And uh, I don't know if you've seen people working in space, but uh, it's, when they move around, they are floating, and they have to help themselves to move around with the hats and uh, restrain with the feet to the floor. So it's uh, a bit difficult to look at the laptop or hold the papers. You have this uh, system that you put on your on your head and is connected to the computer, and then you talk with it while you perform your task, and then it gives you the instructions of uh, what you are uh, supposed to do. What we were trying to do is to help the astronauts to identify the small elements within a very complex structure, so he doesn't lose too much time trying to find the little valve he has to open or close, or the thing he has to replace, so he he can do the things more precisely and also also saving some time.
1: So, in order to build this, did you need to to build special equipment for it, or can you actually use sort of off the shelf?
9: Kit.
6: We did the use of the self-elements, but this was uh, nearly by by accident. Uh, I, I've been collaborating with uh, Fran de Vine, the commander of the space station, uh, for six uh, months. Uh, he's been working with us, uh, with uh, our section, with our group in the space agency for uh, many years. And I, I invited him to... Review the requirements for uh, the first wear tool we were developing. Well, he told us, I'm going on board and I like to take wear with me. So, usually, you, you develop the equipment, uh, custom equipment, to fly on board uh, according to the standard safety and to make it more uh, operable on board. In this case, we didn't have the, the time, so we built this prototype, it's only a prototype, to show what, how helpful it would be to have this kind of uh, system on board and also to assess the usability. and uh, We have very little time. We have to, to do the whole development, safety assessment with uh, NASA and uh, well, all of the process of uh, integration testing, so it was uh, very challenging, very challenging.
1: Once they actually put it on and presumably calibrate it for each person, okay. did they find it really helped?
6: The main problem, as you mentioned, is the calibration, because uh, the system was uh, of the self, so we we couldn't think much about the adjustment to make it uh, very simple. So it it takes uh, a bit of time to get it. the overlay of the images uh, according to what you're, uh, you're looking at. But after the first calibration is done, uh, the find it very convenient to use uh, and easy to use well you need some voice training because the system is uh, guided by voice we made an assessment uh, we gave him a a questionnaire and this was one of the boys uh, usability and he was uh, he was happy
1: so it sounds like there's quite a long way to go this was just a prototype with off the shelf kit but still very promising what's your next step
6: well the next step our friend, Frank, the commander of ISS, says is happy with it. He likes to have a second version, so we have more people, more colleagues working on human interfaces on board. We work together with NASA because ISS, we have many partners. We have Americans, Russians, Europeans, Japanese, so if you want to put something on board, it has to be agreed with all of the people working on ISS. So now, if we want to use it for good, uh, then we need to improve some aspects of uh, size, uh, calibration, usability, and uh, to try to integrate it more with uh, other systems on board that or based the space, the inventory, management system, and, and the other uh, user interfaces we have on board.
1: So there is definitely a lot of work to do, but thank you ever so much for joining us and for sort of filling us in on what could be a very nice new way to stop bits of paper and Haynes manuals essentially floating around the ESA. Thank you very much, Lewis. Okay,
6: thank you for the invitation.
1: That was Lewis Argello from the ESA explaining how wearable augmented reality systems could greatly improve efficiency on the International Space Station, eventually doing away with the need to have paper manuals floating around.
0: Bringing the facts to bear. The naked scientists.
2: And now it's time to get experimental and Dave has a trick of the light in store for Ben.
1: For kitchen science this week Dave has brought me into a dark room lit only by two candles. Now, Dave, this seems very backwards, especially because today's show is all about cutting-edge augmented reality technology, and you've brought me to a room that's only lit by candles. What's this
10: about? So what we've got here is two candles on a table, one each side of a piece of glass, which I'm holding vertically, and we're standing in front of one candle, and we can see the other one through the glass. Now, what do you think is going to happen if you blow out the front candle? Well, the front candle itself will go
1: out, obviously, but the glass is in the way so the one on the other side shouldn't go out. Give it a go. Okay. Now, they both went out, then, at exactly the same time, but my
10: breath couldn't have got round that glass. Is there some kind of trick going on, Dave? It is a trick, and it's all to do with light. If I light the candle again... Well, that's interesting. You've lit the front one, but it looks like they're both lit. Hold on, I'm going to have a look on the other
1: side... This back one definitely isn't lit, but when looking at it from the front through the glass, it looks exactly like a lit
10: candle. That is a clever trick. What's going on? It's all to do with reflections. Glass always reflects about 10% of the light which hits it, depending on the glass and the coatings on the front of it. That's why you see reflections in windows all the time, and I can see reflections in your glasses at the moment. But normally, because everything else is much brighter than this fairly dim reflection, it's completely overpowered by the light, which is going straight through the glass. But if the other side of the glass is very, very dark, maybe only a hundredth of as bright as the thing in front of it, then the light in front of it, the reflection, completely overpowers the image behind it, and all you can see is a reflection. But at the moment, because behind the glass is really, really dim and the candle is really bright, that 10% of reflection looks bright enough to be a candle, so you see it as a candle burning. So it's actually only reflecting
1: a small amount of the light, but I can see all of the light is reflecting, and it does look like there's a candle burning on the other side. That's a very neat trick. Can people try this at home?
10: Yeah, all you need is a vertical piece of glass, a door or a window would work fine, and two candles, one each side. It's great for confusing your family and friends. You just line them up so the reflections in the same place as the other candle, and then it will work beautifully. So it should work with a normal window on a dark night? Yep, it, it doesn't actually have to be pitch black either. We can turn the lights on now. You can now start to see that it's a reflection and not a real candle, a light. But you can still see the reflection, so it works quite well, even in mediumly well-lit rooms. So, yes, it does now look like a ghostly flame
1: on the other candle rather than both candles being lit. So is this the same sort of stuff that happens when it's a dark night, you look out through your window and all you see is yourself?
10: That's right, you're much more brightly lit than the stuff the other side of the window, so all you can see is a reflection, which is much brighter than the light coming through from the other side of the window. Now, here's another great example of the same effect. You've got one of those fancy smartphones with a really bright screen, haven't you? I have, yes. It eats through batteries when the screen's turned up bright, but here you go. Okay. so what I want you to do is get your head so you're looking through the glass at 45 degrees. It's still vertical, but just look at it through 45 degrees.
1: I'm standing, looking at the table and the glass is closer to my right hand than it is to my left, at an angle of about 45 degrees. Everything looks normal so far.
10: OK, now I'm going to try and put the phone, so you should be able to see the reflection of it in the glass. OK, so Dave's putting the phone just down on the table. Oh, yes, yep, it's backwards, but I can see the home screen of my phone. If you imagine, instead of a phone screen, you had a brightly lit person on there. What you'd see through the glass is a ghostly image of a person superimposed on the surroundings behind it.
1: Yes, I can only see the bright bits sort of floating ghost-like above the table. So if there was a person standing where the phone is, they'd need a lot of light
10: on them, but I would be able to see them in the glass. That's right, and if they were hidden from you, you wouldn't know they were there. And if the glass was hidden, you'd have a beautiful illusion of a ghost, which they used in Victorian theatres. It's an effect called Pepper's Ghost. But now if I open a map or some useful piece of information and put it in front of the glass, you can see the map superimposed upon the world. Yes, I can see the map just floating above the table rather mysteriously.
1: So what good is making a ghost of a map?
10: Well, if you want to superimpose some information over your view of the world, augmented reality, you can use exactly this system. So we were just augmenting your view of the world with a map. And in fact, planes have been using this system to augment reality for 30 or 40 years. They've been superimposing um, useful things like altitude and speed and direction over the top of the pilot's view of the world. So holding my phone at a squiffy angle to a sheet of glass is the same
1: trick that pilots use to safely get people all over the world. Exactly. Well, I hope that pilots rely on a little bit more than the map that you can see on my phone. But that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more next week.
2: That was Dave Ansell joining Ben to demonstrate a trick known as Pepper's Ghost, relying on the reflective properties of glass to create semi-transparent images like on-stage spectres or displays for pilots.
1: Now, although the effect is commonly known as Pepper's Ghost and attributed to John Henry Pepper, a lecturer at the Royal Polytechnic Institute in London, it seems that the idea was first patented by Henry Dirks, an engineer from Liverpool, who called it, and I love this name, the Dirksian Phantasmagoria. (laughs)
2: That is awesome.
1: (laughs) Pepper saw this and took Dirks' idea and made a practical version that he then demonstrated in 1862 during a performance of Dickens' The Haunted Man. Now, because it was Pepper's version on stage that made it into the public consciousness, we do now call it Pepper's Ghost rather than the Dirksian phantasmagoria. But apparently John Pepper always claimed that Dirk was due the credit. so good on him.
2: We've had a few questions coming in. We've heard from Science Copperfield on email who wants to know, what's the point of keeping a nerve cell alive without an axon? Isn't this like putting a man in the middle of a stadium out of audio range for shouting? So, Mike Coleman, you're still with us. What are your thoughts on that question?
3: Well, that's a very good question. Um, so we use, um, we cut axons in, in a culture dish um, because that's a very well-defined beginning of the degeneration period. And it gives us good control over when that degeneration starts. Um, but it's very, there's very good evidence now that a similar mechanism of degeneration takes place in Several neurodegenerative disorders, uh, motor neuron disease, uh, glaucoma, where pressure in the eye um, actually causes the axon to degenerate, and probably in an Alzheimer's disease too. Um, so um, we're using the, trans, the the cutting model uh, as as a model for what's happening in the neurodegenerative disorders. And a, a good analogy, going back to again to the traffic holdup, uh, would be the difference between actually closing a motorway, so you totally block the motorway the traffic through there that will be the cut um and restricting the traffic for example to one lane or a certain speed limit um so the the type of hold-up is quite different but but the particular traffic that's affected by that is actually going to be quite similar
2: We've also heard from Jen in Cambridge, who says she's a big fan of forensic science programmes on TV and enjoys watching their incredible recreations of three-dimensional images to help them solve their crimes.
1: Incredible is one word for it. I think impossible is probably <laughs> slightly <laughs> right, did more Did I just accurate? give away
2: that I haven't watched it myself? <laughs> anyway, sorry. Jen wants to know, is this kind of thing actually used with augmented reality? Can it help us in solving crimes and recreating what happened and maybe helping us to understand if eyewitness accounts actually were credible. and I think we have to ask our guest Tom Drummond for any thoughts on the forensic use of augmented reality.
4: Well this business of taking the real world and building, building virtual models of it is something we also work on in the uh, context of computer vision that's called reconstruction uh, and indeed one of the things that we do in the lab uh, for the purposes of producing content for virtual Uh, for augmented reality, is to have a system whereby you can put an item in front of a webcam, rotate it slowly in front of the camera, and the computer will automatically build an accurate 3D model of what it's looking at. Now, that's in the small, but indeed people do work on building larger systems for forensic purposes as well.
2: So there you go, it could actually be real. Excellent. Thanks very much.
1: Well, that's quite nice to know, as it does look to be absolutely incredible whenever they do it on TV. A bit like their incredible ability to reconstruct things from a reflection in a raindrop on a window Somewhere. From that, of course, they can read car number plates or get very accurate pictures. Um, but we've also had some wonderful feedback from you guys listening. We've had one from Bill Radatz who says he just wanted to encourage Chris and the rest of the Naked Scientist team to keep up the good work. He says, thanks for posting our radio show on iTunes so the rest of the world can have access to it. He lives in the mountains of central Utah in the US, and he says it does pose some interesting challenges in the winter when listening to our podcasts while sat naked at his computer. But he's willing to endure a bit of a chill for an hour of enlightenment. Well, I'm glad that you're willing to sacrifice your comfort for us our
2: audience is going to very great lengths thank you very much (laughs) don't send in pictures
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it has to be said that you don't have to be naked to listen to us but of course it might actually help we've also had a lovely email from Matthew Sykes who said that we might like to hear that we've done a great deal towards his daughter's continued interest in science through the kitchen science segment and he's asked us to keep up the good work well that is why we do it that's Matt in Australia so thank you ever so much for getting in touch Matt And now, with another question laundered, ironed
10: and aired, here's Diana O'Carroll.
5: This week we're hanging out to dry in the cold.
10: I'm David from North Wales. I'm interested to know whether leaving washing out on a line during freezing weather, even though it might be sunny, is a good idea.
5: So will clothing dry outside in the winter?
9: I'm John King and I work at the British Antarctic Survey here in Cambridge. Well, even when it's very cold washing can still dry, but it may dry so slowly that it really just isn't worth it. The reason washing dries is because water evaporates from it. Now, if a wet surface is in contact with the air, some molecules of water will leave the surface and go into the air. But at the same time, molecules of water vapour from the air will be coming into the surface. Eventually, we reach uh, some kind of equilibrium where the amount of water leaving the surface is the same as the amount coming in. We then say that the air is saturated with water, and once the air is saturated, no more evaporation can take place. Now, if we look at the basic physics underlying this, we find that the amount of water that air can hold when it's saturated depends very strongly on temperature, and the warmer the air is, the more water it can hold. So evaporation tends to proceed much more quickly when it's warmer than when it's cold. But even when it's quite cold, as long as the air isn't saturated, your washing will dry, but it may dry very, very slowly, and it may rain before it gets dry. (laughs) In general, we don't hang washing out to dry in the Antarctic because it is so cold that things would take such a long time to dry. Maybe on a really nice sunny day in the middle of summer, you might get the tea towels dry or something like that.
5: Evaporation does require energy, and the warmer the air, the more energy there is to remove dampness from your washing. But as our forum-goer Eric Taylor said, it has more to do with the relative humidity than temperature. So if you live in a dry but cold area, you might be better off hanging out your washing than if you were in a hot but humid country. And something similar can happen in the Antarctic, where, in a region called the Dry Valleys, there is no ice or snow on the ground because what does land there is sublimated directly into vapour. And we have another weather-related question for next week.
4: Dear Naked Scientists, I am especially curious to know if there was some shift in the seasons a long time ago, that if we imposed our calendar system to the time of the dinosaurs, for example, would
9: we still find the season similar to autumn uh, occurring around October, or would this season have occurred at some point earlier in
4: the year? Best regards yeah, so in Canada.
5: Were the seasons always the same? Was the length of the year even the same several hundred million years ago? Let us know the answer by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
1: Thank you, Diana O'Carroll. And as Diana just said, you can get in touch by email or via the forum if you think you know the answer to this week's question. You can also find our question of the week on iTunes or on our website as its own independent podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back next week to look at water pollution, finding out how pollution affects aquatic ecosystems, how hormone mimics in the water can change fish populations, and Mira will be visiting a sewage works to find out what happens after you've flushed. If you want to catch up with anything we've done, see our experiments, or follow up any of the news stories we've covered, join us online at thenakedscientists.com. So all that remains is many thanks to Michael Coleman, Tom Drummond, Paul Penn and Lewis Arguello for joining us on the show this week, and to our production team, Mira Santalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. Get your science questions into chris at thenakedscientists.com and have a great week.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.